0: Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles open, up, <clears throat> excuse me, open up to the Epistle of Jude. It's the second to the last book in your New Testament. Uh, If you're new, welcome, we uh, go through books of the Bible and so you will need your Bible because we actually read our Bible and we're going to go verse by verse through Jude. I apologize in advance, excuse me, because I feel like this is going to be like drinking from a fire hose because I've been going through like two verses at a time and now I'm going to do a big chunk and there's a ton in here so I'm just, I'm sorry, you're going to get all wet and try to drink as much as you can on the way. Now, Jude um, is a short, powerful, passionate, kind of straightforward epistle, and he is writing uh, to a church or several churches, warning them. And he is warning them about what he calls certain people. Certain people have crept into the church unnoticed, he says, secretly, clandestinely, false teachers who look like Christians, have slipped into the church under the doctrinal radar and are trying to hurt the church, divide the church, ruin the sheep. Just like Paul actually warned young Timothy, who was pastoring Ephesus at the time, he says that there are people in the church with the appearance of godliness who creep into households, he says, and capture weak women. That's what he says. It's not to suggest that all women are weak, but instead, in his context, emphasizing the vulnerable. I do find it noteworthy in our world today that with the, and I mean this, rightful and welcomed increase of a woman's voice and role in the church today, there also has, as a result of that, given rise to what I would say Jude would describe as certain people. Certain people have crept in. Certain voices have crept in. And many of them are female. There are several popular evangelical authors with huge followings of women soaking up false truth. One example is author Jen Hatmaker. You've probably heard of her before. She's referred to now as a leader in the deconversion movement. The deconverted are not the lost that reject God's word. The deconverted are supposedly the found that are now reinterpreting it and rejecting the church. Hatmaker is a charming woman. Very well spoken And that actually makes her denial of orthodoxy, especially in terms of sexuality, quite dangerous. Contagious, in fact. About her views on scripture, she condescendingly wrote this. Obviously, so much of what is written about homosexuality in scripture is contextually bound. There's not much in there, frankly. But it's deeply bound in culture just like a thousand other points in the Bible are. I don't know if you know how dangerous that kind of statement is. That basically says, culture dictates scripture. Scripture changes with culture. It's tons to unpack there. Another more re- recent example includes another popular female author named Rachel Hollis. Maybe read her book. She teaches things like this. You are meant to be the hero of your own story. And there's no right way or wrong way to think about God. Sin isn't the problem, and all judgment is bad. Now, I know I'm taking little quotes and quips out of it, but I'm trying to encourage us all to be careful. These things, although woefully unbiblical, are very spiritual-sounding. And they've itched enough ears to make them bestsellers. So much so that the New York Times described Miss Hollis's book as the no-nonsense gospel. The no-nonsense, they used the word gospel to describe it. Now, to be fair, men are equally captured because they are equally weak. There is a reason why men are the leading proponents of many false gospels. You have the Benny Hinn's of the prosperity gospel. You have the Tolian Tavidians, You know who knows if I said his name right, preaching what amounts to a really permissive grace gospel as he has his affairs. You have the Rob Bells teaching a no hell gospel. You have the Richard Rohr's teaching a new age gospel. Or some call the gospel of the Enneagram. Now, Let's be fair, truth be told, full disclosure, I've taken the Enneagram. I don't hate the Enneagram. But it's become increasingly popular these days, especially with Christians. There are some who have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) And there are others that find this personality test a helpful tool. But there are actually a growing number of people who have taken this tool beyond a tool and now make it an idol to guide their lives or to evaluate the lives of others. So much so that it has, in their views, the power to save. Now, it might surprise you to learn that there are a lot of Christian authors, mostly male, but not only male. They've described the true purpose of the test as this, to reveal to you your shadow side and offer spiritual counsel on how to open it to the transformative light of grace. Anything offering spiritual counsel should be a red flag. It is the means to read the soul. I thought that's what that was. They describe a sinner as not, or a sinner is someone who just doesn't love themselves enough. A sinner is someone who just doesn't love themselves enough. Now, again, this is not suggest that there's nothing to learn from Enneagram or even some of these authors that are writing. Um, it is to caution us in this way, that false gospels and false saviors empowered by false spirits don't walk into our lives with signs on their head declaring, I'm demonic. They slip in. How do you know if they're demonic, though? Like, how, how do you know it? Now, I use that word because Paul uses that word. He talks about demonic teachings and, retar- and talking about false gospels and false teachings. How do we know something's demonic? Because what if it's not talking about Satan? Well, I would argue that demonic teachings and false gospels push us towards a place where we become the savior in the story. Spurgeon said it this way, I thought it was excellent. It is always the Holy Spirit work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite. He's constantly trying to make us look at ourselves instead of Christ. Christ. So, as you read these things, as you hear these things, as you use these tools, you ask yourself, where is this leading me? Is this leading me to look at Christ, or is this leading me to look at myself? And there's nothing wrong with looking at yourself, but when you're setting your mind on yourself and you're actually trying to find salvation in yourself, you could be believing a false gospel. We should be watchful and wary of those spiritual sounding movements which are really Gospels of the self. They're often quite popular actually with both believers and non-believers. That's a good sign or a bad sign, however you're looking at it. False Gospels worm their way in. They do it slowly. They appeal to our flesh and they sound quite spiritual but you will realize given enough time they're Quite unbiblical. Jude is going to tell us that our disposition towards these false gospels has eternal consequences. And the question isn't whether we ever fall into one, because that can happen. You accidentally start you know, getting excited about what you read or what you learn, and you're like, man, this, this sounds really good. I think the question is not whether you fall into it, whether you stumble into something. The question is, how do you respond when you actually learn the truth? So let's read Jude, verses 5 to 16, and it's packed full of stuff about these false gospels and these false teachers. He says this in verse 5, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire serve as an example of under, by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner these people also, speaking of the false teachers, Relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when, our, when the archangel Michael, I know it gets weird, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, what? We'll get there. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they don't understand. They're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they've walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are the hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea cast up the foam of their own shame, Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied saying, Behold the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. A lot of ungodlies in there. These are the grumblers, the malcontents, the following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Woo! Now, if you read that and got, what would I say? Welcome to my week, right? You open it up and you're like, holy cow! That's a lot. I'll try to explain it the best that I can to you. So to begin, we, we see that Jude is actually a very well-read man. He includes a lot of images, a lot of biblical allusions from the Old Testament, and he begins by inviting us to remember some things. He wants us to remember certain truths, particularly in the Old Testament, to help inform our understanding of what's going on in the New. Now, many wrongly divide the Old Testament and the New Testament into two different stories about two different gods. Let's say all the Old Testament describes the God of wrath, the God of judgment, the God who's just angry all the time. And the New Testament's the God of love and Jesus and everything's wonderful. And we make this wrong dichotomy between the two. Never forget that the Bible has 66 books 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. They're written about 40 different authors over several thousand years and yet they tell one story one story about God that climaxes in the life death and resurrection and return of his one son Jesus Christ now Jude says to those he's writing to we are to remember the full story that they once knew remember how all works together he says because their partial belief has left them vulnerable to a false gospel. They like to believe parts of God. They like to believe parts of Jesus. They like to believe parts of the Bible. Does that sound familiar? Right? i want to take parts. I like this part. It's like a spiritual smorgasbord. Welcome to the Northwest. Right? I'll take this piece and this piece. and no, I like this piece. And create this conglomeration of spirituality that isn't quite biblical. We, many, in our culture like to focus on the parts of Jesus that we like and discard the parts that make us uncomfortable. As all good cultists do, this invariably remakes God and Jesus into an image that's much more attractive and much more affirming of whatever you want Him to affirm. Now, as Tim Keller once wrote, if your God that you're worshiping never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. The same could be said about Jesus. If Jesus never affronts you, offends you, pierces you with his words, it's possible that you actually are not worshiping Jesus, at least not the Jesus of the Bible. And Paul has already told us in 2 Corinthians 11 that there are lots of different Jesuses, but only one that is true. Here, surprisingly, (coughs) Jude presents Jesus as present in the Old Testament. Did you catch it? Kind of scary, right? I want to remind you, what you fully knew, that Jesus, okay, Jesus, New Testament Jesus, humble, meek Jesus, is the one who saved the people out of the land of Egypt? And Jesus, the one who afterward destroyed Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second. Jesus saving and Jesus destroying. Jesus connected intimately, personally, identifying with the God of the Old Testament who is judging. Jesus, the one who says made an example out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus, the judge. Jesus, the prison warden, keeping angels in chains. Jesus, the executioner. I'm not sure that's the Jesus that we most often or ever talk about because it makes us uncomfortable. And yet, let us not forget that Jesus himself describes himself in the end times as a king sitting on a throne separating the goats and the sheep right the non-believers from the believers and what is he doing with those who do not believe sending them into utter darkness that jesus oh but but jesus is all love jesus is all forgiveness jesus is all accepting and affirming like no he's not he saves those who repent and believe he doesn't save all and that makes us uncomfortable makes us uncomfortable because Jude reminds us here that Jesus is saving those who believe and destroying those who do not. That's what he says. Those who did not believe, he's destroying. Now, two-thirds of who Jude talks about in here, angels and the Israelites, that's who he's killing. The sobering aspect of it is those are people who are chosen by God and those who are created to serve God. Like these are, these are supposedly on God's team. These aren't the Canaanites. These aren't the bad people. These are those who were his Israelites who came out of Egypt. Jesus has given us a pretty stark warning, right? He's writing to a church. This letter will be read publicly. And what he's trying to tell those who are hearing this, who are perhaps a little overconfident in their salvation. We don't talk about that. We're just talking about positive things. But he's warning them, saying, look, remember the Israelites? They had an initial commitment to follow. They were in the presence of God in his community. They participated in all the things that the people did, and yet they did not believe. They followed a false gospel, if you will. They thought something else other than God could save them. Jude uses Israel's apostasy. He uses the angelic rebellion. And he says, this stands as an example. And it's an example for everyone who thinks that because I prayed a prayer, I'm saved. I know it's scary to hear. I prayed a prayer and I can do whatever I want. I prayed a prayer, I can believe whatever I want. This is why Paul writes this in Colossians 1. And you who were once alienated, yes. You were once hostile, yes. You were once doing evil deeds, yes. He is now reconciled in his body by his flesh, by his death, yes. He believed in Jesus in order to present you holy and blameless, above reproach before him, if, oh, if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Right? Like that that can happen. That you heard, which is proclaimed the creation of heaven and by which I became a minister. Don't shift in your hope from the gospel, the gospel, the one gospel. Even in the epistle of Hebrews, right? The author of Hebrews says that there was some, not all of Israel, some who entered into God's promised rest. And those who did were the ones who responded to God's voice. You see, all who were liberated out of Egypt were called out to be worshipers. They were called out to be a nation of God. Many participated, dare I say, most participated in the organized religion, even identified as a member through circumcision. And yet, when it came time to listen to God's word, they proved... As Paul would say, not all who were circumcised were circumcised in the heart. All the Israelites thought they were part of God's people. They all thought that. And so Jude's saying, like, they all thought they were part of God's people. And yet, he insists that belief in the truth, obedience to the truth, following the truth, is actually what determines whether you're saved or not. Now, I brought this verse up so many times because it frightens me, and that's Matthew chapter seven. Right, we talk about the people who are in the community, people who look like believers, who act like believers, who, who function like believers, who do all the things that the Israelites do. And in Matthew chapter seven, what does Jesus say? Jesus says at the end when they come to me, he says not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, like that, there's emotion in that there's conviction in that not everyone who says to me lord lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who's in heaven on that day many are going to say lord lord did we not prophesy your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name and then i will declare to them i never knew you depart from me workers of lawlessness you see their level of participation so Jude is warning those who are listening to his letter, and he's warning those who are false teachers among them. Like, you, you play the part, you look the part, but God knows the heart. And you can fool a lot of people, but we ought not be fooled by them. Well, and as Jude continues, he goes into verse 8, and he proceeds to describe these false teachers in the most starkest of terms, so that we would all recognize red flags. We'd all recognize what's going on and whether or not we know the gospel is false, that they are teaching. And how does he describe them? In like manner, these people, these certain people that have crept in, are relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Okay? Now, Jude reveals that these false teachers are neither humble nor they slow to speak. They talk a lot. They are, as he says right here, like instinctual animals. Claiming to understand a bunch, but in fact destroying themselves with understanding. And here's the things he says that they rely on. Think about this. The gospel that takes us away from self... Or the gospel that takes us towards ourselves. He says they rely on their dreams. Well, what if someone relies on their dreams? Well, the Lord told me. My interpretation. My truth. Different than historic Orthodox Christianity. Different than what the church might teach. Different than most people. I have something special. We talk about, well, yeah, Mormons, right? An angel, Moroni, comes and sees Joseph Smith. The church is apostate. Here's the truth. That's an extreme version, but this happens on a much smaller level with individualized spirituality. My experience, my truth, my dream, if you will. God speaks to me. Defilement of the body. There's a reason why most extreme cults end up in some kind of sexual perversion, right? Nine times out of ten, these kinds of teachings, false gospels, leading to what Jude's dealing with true sensuality, sexual immorality of some kind. That's one way. The other is just like, it's my body, do what I want. Rejection of authority, what he says. Want to do it my way. What do the Proverbs tell us? There's a way that seems right to a man, and in the end, it ends in destruction. When does a man follow the way he thinks is right? The Proverbs also say when he isolates himself and is away from people, away from the community of God, following his own interpretation, obeying his own authority, being the throne of his own life, and ultimately pride. My own power. My truth, my body, my way, my power they blaspheme it says the angels which seems kind of weird but in blaspheming the angels it's it's more of this kind of idea oh spiritual warfare i'm not going to be tricked by satan a pride that says you can't be fooled a pride that says you have everything figured out satan loves that Satan wants you to believe that you got it all figured out, that you don't need any direction, that you can do it all yourself, not lean on anybody else, and certainly not trust God's word as your authority. These are the earmarks, if you will. But he goes even further, right? He starts to allude to the Old Testament. He starts telling stories of the Old Testament that if you're not familiar with you're, like, you're kind of like, what, what is he talking about? And what he's trying to do is go, do you realize how self-oriented these people are? My truth, my body, my way, my power, and then he goes into these three stories. Right? Talks about the error of Balaam and the way of Cain. And you go, who are those people? Maybe you're familiar with someone. So those are the references. I'll briefly explain them, not the whole stories. If you ever want to read the stories, you can you can read them. You go, why are these three? Seems kind of odd. Well, not if you start understanding the full idea that. Judas trying to get to. It says, he walk in the way of Cain. Well, Genesis 4 is a story of Cain. Cain was the first son of Adam and Eve. Cain and his younger brother Abel brought an offering to the Lord. It doesn't detail exactly how that went down. But it does say that God ends up approving Abel's sacrifice and he disapproves Cain's. And Cain is very upset. He feels angry. And what does God do? He warns him. He says, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. Cain has an opportunity to repent. Cain has an opportunity to to not fall, if you will. Yet he refuses to what? Heed God's warning. And in doing so, he ends up murdering his brother and ultimately hurting himself. Why? Why? because he was ticked off at God, he didn't want to obey God, and he didn't want to do it God's way. His offering, for some reason, was wrong. And we can describe and debate how that might have been. But God said, that's not okay. He said, my offering should be just fine. And instead of him responding to God's word, he rejected God's word, and destruction followed. You got Balaam. Well, Balaam was a uh, non-Israelite prophet hired by the enemy of God's people to curse God's people so they come to him and they bring a bunch of money they say hey you're a prophet will you go and curse Israel and he says I can only do what the Lord says so give me a second and let me talk to him so he goes to the Lord and the Lord says no don't do it so he says "I can't do it The enemies leave. Then they come back with like a lot more money and a lot more reward. It's an impressive amount that they bring. And Balaam says, well, I really can't, but let me ask God again. God had already spoken on it. So God angrily lets him go and ultimately through Balaam blesses Israel and doesn't curse them. And as you read the story of Balaam and then you you search the scriptures for what else they say about Balaam, you see that this guy was actually driven by one thing, greed. He was really out for his own gain. Although he had this appearance of like, well, I want to make sure I do what God says. Let me ask him three or four times the same question and see if he lets me do it. God says, fine, go ahead. And that's the false teachers, right? What are they out? They're out for their own gain. They know what's wrong. They 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 don't have to like, should I should I deceive here? You don't need to pray about that. It's pretty obvious God has spoken on that, and yet they go because they're about themselves. And then you have Korah's rebellion. Korah was a leader. Jewish tradition says he was probably a very wealthy and influential leader. He led a rebellion against God's chosen leaders, who were Moses' and Aaron. Well-respected man, Korah organizes a revolt when they're in the wilderness. And that ends with the ground splitting open and Korah and his entire family as well as others being swallowed. He loses his life as does his family as also his belongings. Everything. It's like wiped off the face of the earth, and swallowed by it. And so what do you have? we well, got got Cain saying, this is all about my offering. You have Balaam saying, this is all about my gain. You have Koran saying, this is all about my rule. I don't care about God's authority. I want to rule, not follow His chosen leaders, not obey His stated rules. I want to do what I want to do. Self. The gospel of self. This is the danger of all false gospels, right? What Spurgeon say? Satan's constantly trying to get us to look at ourselves instead of Christ. What am I going to get out of this? How can I do what I want to do? How is my interpretation of my way, of my rule, and my gain? Me 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 me. The gospel of self takes all kinds of different forms, but it is actually in the same root. Trust yourself, be yourself, know yourself, decide for yourself, get for yourself, love yourself. The many false gospels of self, they feel good. They do. That's why they're attractive. But they have disastrous effects, and that's why Jude says, woe to them. He says, woe to them. Because when you, talk, when you read woe in the Bible, what that do is ex- it's expressing like they're in so much trouble that th- there's no way they're going to get out of it. And you go, well, what, what trouble are they? Well, it's not just trouble for them, it's trouble for others. He gives us um, four images, right? all these things, illusions. He, he gives four images of what these guys are like and what happens as a result. He says that they are hidden reefs. Feasting at the love feast, which is, guess what? Communion. The church is gathering. He says, these guys are feasting like wolves. Not caring about the sheep. And he says they're hidden reefs. Well, what's a hidden reef? It's a reef you can't see. And as you are going along in the little boat of faith, what do you do? You hit... Reefs. This is why Paul says, so-and-so has made a shipwreck of their faith. The false gospels of these guys, they just hurt people. How many people, you know, the whole deconverting movement, that is, might as well be called the shipwreck movement. It's people having their faith wrecked as they hit these hidden reefs that they thought may have been, you know, Positive things, or weren't even there, maybe well intended as they began to search out new truth. It says they're clouds that promise rain that never comes. Waterless clouds, it says, right? False promises. Oh, here comes the clouds, because clouds aren't evil. They don't have to be all dark and foreboding. There's like, we need the rain to water our fields, and that rain never comes. It's just northwest gray all the time. But Ray comes here as well, right? It's not rain coming. It's like no rain, waterless, no fruit. He says they're wild waves, tossed to and fro, perpetually changing. Then it says, and when the waves recede, what does it leave? A sticky kind of film of shame, it says. Leaves shame. And then it says they're shooting stars. Now, scholars disagree whether they're just stars, or whether they're shooting stars, because if they're shooting stars, then they fizzle out, right? It's like, gone. Here today, gone tomorrow. If they're wandering stars, which some of your translations would say, that means they've wandered out of the orbit that God designed them to be in right? So either way, guess what? They're horrible for direction. Right? They don't know where they're going. And no one who follows them knows where they're going. They are, by definition, lost. See, what's the big deal? Right here is the big deal. Imagine people going along and like when a ship hits a reef, it sinks as does them and their family when they're having hope in something that never comes, when they're devoting a life to a promise that is never fulfilled, that leads to despair. When their wild waves toss to and fro, whenever some new, and this is what Paul says in Ephesians 4, right? Children tossed to and fro by every wind of culture that comes. The new things that show up, oh, what about this? No stability and no direction. They don't know where they're going. They have no light for their path these are the false gospels that creep into our church that have the appearance of goodness and attractiveness but in fact are destroying people and then this weird story right right before all of this description of he has this weird story about Moses's body And you read and you go, what the snarf is that? Right? And you probably read past it because I understand that. It's a strange story from Jewish tradition. Scholars disagree exactly where it might come from but they tend to agree it must have been part of oral tradition at least. And it's some kind of dispute over Moses' dead body. You're reading it right. The archangel Michael is contending right? Contend for the faith. He's contending with the devil, so we talk about contending with demonic teachings, contending with, so Michael the archangel, so it's not just like, it's like you know Jethro the angel, it's Michael the archangel, so he's like stud angel, top angel, powerful angel, lead angel, he's contending with Moses, sorry, contending with Satan, who's a fallen angel. So you think Mike would be like, I don't think so. I'm um, Michael. Shing, like, and that's it. That's not what he does, though, right? What does it say? As he, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. Now he's contrasting this with the false teachers who were like, "I don't care about demons and angels," and and that's what he says. Whatever that means in that context. They're blaspheming angels. Perhaps they're blaspheming the Old Testament that was delivered you know, through tr- oral tradition, if you will, by an angel to Moses, that kind of idea. Who knows? But they're just like, oh, spirituality, I'm an authority, I can tell whatever. And Michael didn't. The guy that seemed like he'd have all the right to do it doesn't. Instead, he says, the Lord rebuke you. What does that mean? Well, I'd argue that The purpose of the story is trying to contrast Michael's attitude toward demonic powers and those of the false teachers towards the same thing. Jude uses the story not to describe bad teachers, but to caution us against bad contending. We must not base our contention on our own authority because guess what? You're getting closer to... To a false gospel, the moment you start to do that, our contending must be based on the Word of God. We don't just say, oh, if you're a Christian, you don't do that because I don't like that. Or, Christians shouldn't XYZ. May the Lord rebuke you. I will tell you that you're in a dangerous place if you begin to contend. For God, based on yourself. We mustn't battle the gospel of self with self. We're not trying to turn people to our views through our words. We are not trying to turn people or rebuke people toward our view in our words. We are trying and contending to turn people to Christ by his word. His word has power, ours have none. His authority rules, we have no authority. It is so much easier to contend and say, well, the Bible says this, and you can take it up with God, as opposed to this. Well, you know what I think the Bible says. It's a dangerous place to be. This doesn't mean we don't rebuke or that we don't warn or that we don't judge but it means that we never forget our place as we contend with those who have forgotten theirs. We never forget our place as we contend with those who have forgotten theirs. Well, as a final reminder to his people Jude turns our attention towards the return of Christ. That's how he ends it. With another weird reference. He says, it's also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes when 10,000 of His holy ones to execute judgment. You notice in this passage how much judgment we've had? Eternal fire, judgment, destruction of unbelievers... Judgment on who? On all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed such an ungodly way to all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers, the malcontents, following their own sinful desires, their loud loud-mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Oh, goodness gracious. Jude turns our attention toward the return of Christ, and he begins by quoting from what is a Jewish apocalyptic text. So it's a text that is um, considered uh, traditionally Jewish in terms of literature called First Enoch. Scholars would disagree whether he's quoting First Enoch, whether he is just quoting oral tradition. There's big books written about that. Go ahead and read them. Enjoy them. I don't, and I won't. But I do believe. What I don't believe, I should say, is that all of First Enoch is inspired scripture. Um, I don't believe it's inspired scripture, but I do believe it's important literature. In other words, there is important literature that Christians write in our day. It certainly, isn't on the level of scripture, but it's valuable, and it's helpful. The great theologians of the Protestant Reformation coined the phrase, Sola Scriptura. That means scripture alone is our final authority, that we don't believe anything above the Bible, but that doesn't mean we don't believe anything but the Bible. There's a difference. Okay? There is no greater authority, but we certainly can learn and grow from things that are written other than scripture. That said, Jude 14 here, with this strange, 14 through 16, this strange reference, uh, Jude says is a genuine prophecy of God. So, this particular part, if you will, from this historical text or from oral tradition, um, is in some way inspired enough that he would be used in Scripture. But it's interesting that Jude changes it a little bit. He changes it a little bit from where it appears elsewhere. Because he adds the word, the Lord. In the other places where you find it, it talks about God. And this is more referring to Christ. So he says, Behold, the Lord comes, if you will. Christ comes. Jesus comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict the ungodly of their ungodly things, doing ungodly ways, of all their ungodliness, that kind of thing. Jude says the best way to describe these false teachers is they are ungodly. And what does that mean? Without God. Men without God, who do godless works, godless ways, while they speak against God and all His ways. They're godless. Jude warns that the Lord Jesus and His army... Are coming to execute judgment. And he has this little bit at the end where I think is kind of funny. He's coming to execute judgment on the grumblers, the malcontents, these people following their own sinful desires, right? These are people who are critical perpetually. I think one of the red flags of a false gospel is someone comes out and starts telling you all the things that are wrong with the church and all things that are wrong with the Bible, and all things are wrong with Christians, be careful. There might be some truth in the criticism, but when someone builds an entire platform and a movement on criticism, red flag. The grumblers, the ones who are never satisfied, the loud mouths who never shut up and are always talking, always blogging, always writing, always putting out there. Even when they talk about God, it seems as if they're talking about themselves. These are the ones that Jesus says, I'm coming to execute judgment on. You see, Jesus first came as a king, a serpent king, a humble king. He died with a crown of thorns on his head, king of the Jews. That's not how he's going to come the second time. The Bible is really clear, and we don't talk about it very often, that Jesus is returning as a conquering king to destroy to rebuke false teachers with action more than words. This is why, if you read 2 Peter, you'll notice that it's almost identical to Jude in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And scholars argue, is Jude quoting Peter? Is Peter quoting Jude? What's going on here? This description, even the same images that they use to describe these false teachers. And Peter ends the exact same way that Jude does, but blows it up a little bit more. He says these false teachers are saying, Jesus ain't even coming. Where's he at? That's how, they, that's how he ends. He goes, I know they say he's not coming. They're going to say, where's the promise coming? You talk about Jesus coming to make everything right, Jesus coming to execute judgment, whatever. Where is he at? He goes, I know they're going to say, when is he coming? I mean, haven't we? Man, it's been thousands of years. Where's Jesus? Come on, Jesus. Can't keep saying Jesus is going to return. Where is he? They've been saying that since the early church days. But Peter goes on, he says, don't overlook this fact. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. How many thousands of years has it been since Jesus rose? It's been a couple thousand. It's been two days. Right? In God's view, he's like, I'm not in a rush. All right? Right? Then he goes on. The Lord ain't slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But he's patient toward you. Now he's writing to Christians. Not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. He tells false teachers, like, yeah, this is dangerous times, but you guys are in a dangerous place. See, the title of the sermon is Contend for Wrath. We go, hmm. that seems really harsh. But I would argue that a contending for wrath is a contending for God. And contending for God And contending for wrath couldn't be any more different than the spirit of every false gospel that says contend for self. It's the very opposite of it. It's not about, you know, the gospel self is not about God's authority, it's not about God's desires, it's not about God's glory, it's about me and mine and what I'm getting. Our problem is not that we don't love ourselves enough. Our problem is that we love ourselves too much. That's the problem. See, there are only two kinds of people that that enter into eternity. The living and the dead are all raised and everyone goes into eternity. But there's only two kinds of people, if you will. There are those whom Christ in love has taken God's wrath upon Himself before death. And there are those who will take God's wrath upon themselves after death. Those are the only two. If you want to follow the gospel of self, you'll end up having to face God's wrath yourself. But the gospel tells us you don't have to now. Before death, for those who repent and believe, for those who declare that, that Jesus has died on the cross for my sins, that Jesus has risen from the dead to give me life and righteousness and all those things, the wrath has been faced by him for you. Jesus has not yet returned, but the kingdom's coming. The army's coming. He is patient, Peter says. He is slow to anger. And he is calling more people and waiting for them to repent and believe. This, Paul says, is the kindness that leads to repentance. You ever heard like, she shouldn't talk about God's wrath because it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. I totally agree. And His kindness is that He's patient and is not unleashing wrath right now. That's in the same context of that same verse. Don't just take it out and go, it's His kindness, we need to be kind and not talk about wrath. No, the kindness is God's wrath is coming and I'm warning you now. Believe. Believe. We are warned not to take advantage of that kindness because King Jesus is returning and the day of wrath is coming for those who harden their hearts towards his love. The gospel is not save yourself. You know what the gospel is? We use Jesus' words. Deny yourself. That's the gospel. If anyone's going to come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross and follow. Don't let the self rule, don't let the, like yourself wants you to love yourself all the way to hell. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, receive my love, my forgiveness, my protection, my joy upon yourself and you'll be free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are patient, you are loving, you are kind, you are gracious towards us. The Lord, in the very beginning, You could have justly destroyed us. You could have justly killed us and sentenced us, but instead You sent Your Son to die for us. Lord, You are both holy and loving. And I pray that, Lord, Your wrath, Your certain wrath to come, Your judgment to come, Jesus, that will not scare us, or harden our hearts, but, Lord, will compel us toward you, will compel us to receive your love. I pray, Lord, for protection upon all who can hear that will not fall for the false gospels of this world who I believe drive us to trust ourselves, to lean on ourselves, to love ourselves more. Help us not to fall, Lord, for false truth, but help us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, which includes the return of King Jesus, We look forward to that day. Please come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.